0: It was my junior year of college. I was a psychology major at ESU, the enormous state university. I had enrolled in a year-long seminar in experimental psychology, a seminar which had an accompanying lab. Signing up for this meant that half my junior academic year schedule was committed to a topic that I really wasn't interested in. I had been cajoled into this decision by my guidance counselor. She had explained to me that the psychology PhD programs at the big, more prestigious universities were exclusively looking for graduate students who could conduct lab work and animal experiments. In other words, they wanted graduate students who could do the grunt work of their professor's research for them. At the time, I was under the assumption that I needed a degree from a college such as the enormous State University to have credibility in what I thought would be my profession as a therapist. What I was coming to understand though was that such universities had little interest in producing therapists. The professors who lectured there were, for the most part, on a tenure track hamster wheel. They were focused on conducting research in this publish or perish environment. Teaching was, for most of my professors, an annoying distraction. Looking back on it, I was so naive. I had entered college with no idea about what I wanted to do with my life. You see, my choice of psychology as a major was based entirely on the fact that I had dated a girl for two years in high school. A girl who I adored with a total unbridled intensity that one only has when they are still pure of heart and have yet to be corrupted by the failures of past relationships. Sarah, my girlfriend, felt the same way toward me. We were ecstatically happy together. That is, until the moment when Sarah's parents literally and physically forced her to stop dating me. She reacted by suffering what was, in popular culture at the time, termed a nervous breakdown my best guy friend characterized it as my girlfriend sarah going post toasties i knew that this was just his attempt to lighten the distress by injecting some crude humor into the malaise i found myself sarah was placed in a psychiatric hospital i could go into all the reasons her parents didn't approve of me But that's already been covered by tons of feel-good, happy ending, made in Hollywood movies where love conquers all, where the boy and the girl get together in the end. That didn't happen here. Our obvious love for each other couldn't conquer the psychiatric drugs she was forced to take or the high pressure intervention she faced from her parents to overcome what they had termed her childish infatuation with me. In Sarah's parents' eyes, I was nothing more than an uncouth, low-class farm boy from the proverbial wrong side of the tracks. Her parents saw to it that there was no further contact between us. I was barred from visiting her in the psychiatric hospital. After that, the only information about my girlfriend Sarah I received were from cryptic messages that managed to reach me messages which were passed along to me through her other friends the few who she was still permitted to see during visiting hours. As one of Sarah's friends termed it I had been stiff-armed by her parents. Then one day even that ended. Everyone, even her closest girlfriends, were prohibited from visiting Sarah and all the messages stopped so needless to say i was more than just heartbroken and confused i was emotionally crushed rudderless i floated off to college a few months later my choice of psychology as a major was as much about me trying to figure out what had happened to my girlfriend as much as it was about me trying to learn some coping skills as time went on i also developed this growing desire to gain some insight into what had actually happened so I could avoid such psychological jeopardy in the future. By that time, the beginning of my junior year at ESU, I still hadn't dated anyone. Time hadn't helped. I was still shell-shocked from what I had gone through. My psychology classes hadn't helped either. Oh, I had learned all about the nervous system and perception and of course, the very interesting theories of Sigmund Freud. But I hadn't been taught anything that could help me unpack the trauma I had experienced firsthand, let alone anything to avoid such situations in the future. So there I was, 20 years old, and now committed to a major that wasn't giving me the answers that I had expected. To add insult to injury, I was also stuck in an experimental psychology series, which I soon discovered was all about the structure Processes and procedures involved in conducting psychological experiments. That would have been more palatable, acceptable in fact, if the experiments involved people. But no, the entire year was centered on experiments involving rats. Say what you want about rats. They might be dirty and disgusting animals to some, and cute pets to others, but they were not people. Far from it. Going into my third year of psychology, I had had just about all that I could take. This wasn't leading me toward the answers that I sought. However, in my infinite ability to rationalize bad decisions, I thought that teaching rats to run mazes might be an interim step, a step which might lead to something useful in my quest of understanding human behavior, and perhaps even myself. After all, I had now crossed the Rubicon. Backtracking and changing majors would add at least a year onto my college career, something I doubt that my parents would pay for, especially given the fact that they balked at my choice of psychology as my college major to begin with. The first couple of weeks of lecture and lab confirmed my initial suspicions. I had no interest in rats or rat behavior. The next week, in a large lecture hall of 300 or so of my brethren, undergraduate psychology students, I voiced my concerns. I bravely spoke up and asked the professor why this was important, given that my interest was in human behavior, not rat behavior. To my surprise, the professor thanked me for my question, then paused. After a few minutes of silent contemplation, The professor began to dress me down in front of all my classmates by explaining how idiotic I was not to know the concepts of British empiricism and scientific reductionism, the twin pillars of the psychology department at the enormous State University. Essentially, he honed in on the fact that psychology was a science, and a hard science at that, one relying on systematic observation, measurements, and experimentation to test preformed hypotheses and develop evidence-based conclusions. That was the empiricism portion of his contrition. Even though he was talking directly to me in this huge lecture hall, I remember how my mind began to wander as he droned on and on with his esoteric arguments for considering the study of human behavior to be more akin to studying biology than philosophy. When he shifted to explaining the concepts of biological and behavioral reductionism, my attention returned, and I began to once again follow along. Basically, the professor's logic went something like this. If one studied and understood the laws and hard facts of atomic theory, then you could understand chemistry. And if you really understood chemistry, like all of it you would understand biochemistry because after all what is biochemistry but chemistry in a higher form then if you mastered biochemistry to the point that you really really knew how biochemistry worked you would understand the intricacies of behavior because you would have a mastery of how hormones neurotransmitters and the structure of the nervous system process impulses his behavioral reduction argument was simpler He basically accepted, as irrefutable fact, that the behavior of lower life forms only differ from humans in terms of complexity, but the underlying mechanics of the behaviors were identical, such as the biochemistry involved. So, tying it all together, he was saying that if we understand the behavior of ants really, really well, we would understand the behavior of the next higher life form, continuing up the hierarchy onto rats and then primates and then all the way to humans. So he said, that is why we study rats at this university. The professor then paused after his long winded explanation. I sat there in this uncomfortable stadium style chair while he folded his hands behind his back and stared directly at me, taunting me to respond. During the stare down, I carefully considered his explanation. I knew that he was right but only partially we had all learned in prerequisite classes about the experiments conducted by pavlov where he had conditioned dogs to salivate by pairing the ringing of a bell with being fed but that was simply an unconscious response of an animal's nervous system and there was what bf skinner had done he taught hungry rats to press levers to get food This was a totally conscious act, something that I assumed the rats learned and then thought about doing. This took thought, not just an unconscious biological action like with Pavlov's dogs. Skinner worked with rats. That also was more along the lines of his argument. But to me, that was still a far cry from what had happened to Sarah. No amount of lever pushing to get fed could explain how she had melted down which left me back at the beginning. I still could not see any relationship between teaching rats to run mazes in order to get their dinner, and why my ex-girlfriend had ended up in a mental institution. Given the professor's tone of voice and the time he devoted to putting me in my place though, it was clear to me that I had touched a nerve that went way beyond implying that my attention and my tuition was being wasted in his class. Then, after a few seconds, which seemed like hours, he broke the silence by smugly asking me if he had answered my question. I mistakenly shook my head and replied no in a clear, unambiguous tone of voice that seemed to echo across the large lecture hall. Now so silent, you could hear a pin drop. The professor then asked, now in an even more condescending tone of voice, Well, what don't you understand? So then, what you are saying is if we study enough rats, we will understand all human behavior? I asked in return. In a manner of speaking, yes, he replied. So then, if we study enough rats, we will understand why people decide to follow the tenets of a religion? I then asked, skipping over countless intermediate steps. Stumped. The professor mumbled, That's not a relevant question. But there are countless examples of people being motivated by faith. Just look at all the churches and cathedrals that have been built, not to mention all the people who have died in the wars that have been fought just because of religion, I countered, now beginning to enjoy the back and forth. Being motivated by a religious belief isn't a relevant behavior in experimental psychology, the professor then huffed. I'm not sure I understand, I replied. But setting that aside, would understanding anorexia or bulimia be relevant? I asked, now clearly pressing the issue. Rat studies can and have given us an understanding of the neurobiology, behavioral patterns, and genetic factors involved in eating disorders, countered the professor. Well, I recall learning in my abnormal psychology class last year that bulimia only emerged as a disease in humans recently, like in the past 50 years or so. So, are you saying that the neurobiology and genetic factors involved in bulimia for both people and rats changed earlier this century in unison, I asked rhetorically. The professor then bit his lip and nodded angrily, not knowing what to say. Clearly on a roll, I continued, plus, I don't think a rat has ever existed that would pass up a free meal. That was followed by a moment of utter silence, a silence which I couldn't help but punctuate by asking. So, tell me, how many rats would it take to understand someone afflicted with anorexia or bulimia then? Would 10,000 be enough? My question was met with a few nervous giggles around the lecture hall. Now clearly miffed, the professor replied. Anorexia and bulimia have existed longer than 50 years. It just wasn't documented before the 1970s. Oh, so since there isn't any documentation in history before the 1970s of a psychological disease as drastic as anorexia or bulimia, we should just assume that since those diseases exist today, that they have always existed? I countered. The professor, now seeing that he had been outmaneuvered, replied, I suggest that you take a class and debate if that's what you're looking for. Here, we study the science of psychology, and we study rats because, based on the behavior of rats, we can infer how people will behave. Then, knowing that he had clearly ignored my last point, the professor paced around his podium for a few seconds, composing himself, before going back to his lecture on experimental psychology. I thought that would be the end of it. I thought I could disappear as just another name in the 300 or so students in this large lecture class. Later that week, in the smaller breakout sections where I was one of 25 or so students, the teaching assistant recognized me and asked for my name. I, of course, told her, but then asked why she wanted to know who I was. Because Professor Smith wants to know your name, was her response. I knew that was it. I knew I had put a fork in myself and was done. A week later I dropped out of ESU, eventually moving thousands of miles away where there was nothing and no one to remind me of my ex-girlfriend or the two years I had wasted after she had been institutionalized. Two years I had spent searching for an understanding. Two years I had spent looking for some reason why Sarah had gone post-Toasties, and two years I had spent looking for some sort of remedy for my own depression, mistakenly believing such answers could be found within the psychology curriculum at the enormous State University.